Let me take a minute and pray for us as we, uh, as we get rolling. We do thank you, Lord, uh, for this beautiful day. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to be outside again. We thank you for the opportunity to be together again. And Lord, I ask that as we continue to slowly and carefully uh, do more things, that you would bless us, that you would protect us, uh, and that you would make our gatherings very special and very sweet. Lord, I thank you for your church, and I thank you for scripture, and I pray as we open First John again tonight uh, that our hearts and minds might be transformed, and that we all might be just a little bit more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I do want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 John if you have a Bible. And I always think I have this strong preference for real books. So uh, I think a, a real Bible would be a good thing to look at uh, if you have it. But if you don't, look at it however you can. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, but we're going to be all over the book of 1 John today. So I'm going to, I'm going to rant to you guys real quick. Um, here's something that happened a week ago. I've told some of you this story because I was just so furious. But so I teach a, a, an undergrad class at Friends. Uh, I teach the Psalms course. I've taught it for years. And I had some students who, for whatever reason, they just completely forgot that we had a test one day. Uh, I can't imagine. And, uh, and I thought, you know, they're not normally this bad of students. So I'm going to give them uh, a chance to make that up. And I said, you have to uh, write a paper on a psalm, and here are some books that you can check out from the library so that you can uh, uh, do this do this paper. Um, and they're like, library? And I said, it's that place with TVs in it, um, which I think is dumb. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's only, you know, educational stuff like uh, CNBC or whatever. Um, but I tell them to go to the library, tell them the books that they need to go get. Well, at Friends... Uh, and they've got a, I love their library. I've been in and out of it for 30 years now. And, uh, and it's all the stacks, all the books are up on the mezzanine level. Well, because of COVID, you can't go up into the mezzanine, up into the stacks, because the CDC has pointed out that books transmit COVID horribly. Of course, that was, that was a really horrible joke. I would expect some groans. But uh, for some reason, unbeknownst, I have no idea why they don't let us go up to the books. But I explained to him, I said, I'm a faculty person. Do you mind if I just run up there? I know the books I'm looking for. I, I had gone up to look for some books of my own. And, uh, and I knew that some of my students were going to come up there. And they're like, no, no. Uh, and I said, is this like just a library policy? Is it administration? And they said, well, it's a combination, which means to me, there's nothing you can do. Um, we're going to add two people together. So there's no, no way that we can get around it. So I went to the computers, which are incredibly slow. There was no scratch paper to write down call numbers, so I had to print out, I was getting three books. I had to print out four sheets of paper just for three call numbers. So I go up and I hand them to the, the student who's working at the counter, and I slide it under the big plexiglass thing. And as I do that, she says, well, there's a, you're supposed to put it through this slot here. I'm like, oh, okay. So I took it back out and I put it through the slot. That was number one. Um, then uh, they send another student up the 12 feet to the mezzanine to go get the books, and she has to take the elevator. I don't know why she has to, I mean, it's an incredibly slow elevator, so I hear it just tick, 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 and I'm watching, and I'm looking at the books. 
Um, so she goes up. She can't find him. I'm shouting to her. I'm like, you know, back there. It's a library. You're not supposed to shout. But uh, you're also supposed to be allowed to pick up books. Um, but she's up there. doing. The, she can't find it. So the girl behind the counter that I worked with initially, she has her foot in a cast, and she has a scooter. And forgive me if your best friend is the library and it, at Friends, but we're going to keep going. Uh, that person came out, and uh, uh, and I'm like, can I just run up there? I'm a faculty person. I'm faculty. Um, I know where the books are. And she goes, no, it's just the uh, it's the policy. We can't let you do that. So since the girl can't find it, they send the girl with a broken leg up upstairs. So she goes in the elevator, click, 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 click. Um, finally, they come down with my books. But on the way down, I'm like, really? I, what if I just ran up there? What would happen? And the lady kind of unpleasantly said, well, I wouldn't tackle you. I'm like, okay, well, I won't do that. So I went back to my students the next day and I explained to them that I'd give them extra credit if they give me video proof that they have gone up into the stacks illegally. So I'm waiting to see what happens. Um, I'm also waiting to get a letter that says, don't come back next semester, which is, uh, which, you know, blessings and curses. Um, so we're talking about sin tonight, and, uh, and I clearly just did that right in front of you. Just sin, um, as it were. But uh, part of our huge, extraordinarily long title here at, uh, in this series on 1 John is the word sin. So the title is Fully Human, Love, Sin, and More Love. A little bit more sin and a lot more love and a whole lot of love. And a whole lot of love. Anybody get that, Joe? da 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 Led Zeppelin? Okay. I need to save all of these. They didn't go over very well. Um, but part of this long title is the word sin, and we're going to talk about that tonight. We don't talk about sin very much uh, here at Wheatland, uh, but to our credit, uh, we deal with sin every week in our worship service, at least in at least two different places. Every week we pray the Lord's Prayer, which we did just a few moments ago, and we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The other place is our prayer of confession, which we're going to do in a few minutes as well. And there we confess to God that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. And then equally, if not more important, each week we hear the assurance of forgiveness. So after the prayer of confession, one of us will lift our hands up and proclaim, Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep us in eternal life. You'll get to hear it twice today. And I want to remind you that it's not Paul Hill or Nathan Hansen or whomever else is doing the forgiving. It's God who's doing the forgiving, not us. So as we put on the stole and raise our hands, we are pronouncing something that is true. And that is that God in Christ has forgiven us. And even though we represent God with the stole on our hands and our hands raised, it's God's forgiveness that comes to us. And it's God's alone to give us. I think it's important, however, that we speak about sin. Although we confess our sins corporately and receive assurance of forgiveness corporately, it's important that we think about what is happening. Because part of our growth as Christian people is knowing and recognizing our sin and moving in the right direction away from it. And this is not self-improvement. This is God's work in our lives. So what is sin? 
We hear the word a lot, but rarely do we talk about what it is or what it means. In the broader culture, the word is almost always used in an attempt to alleviate feelings of guilt. For example, we hear people say, well, he's not that big a sinner, or I'm not that big of a sinner, or it's no sin to do thus and so. And by the way, it almost always is, but they say that it isn't, right? People rarely sin anymore. They just make mistakes. So what follows, uh, the two descriptions I'm going to give us about sin is an oversimplification, but I think as we read in 1 John, this oversimplification might be useful to us. I want us to think about it in two different ways, and the first one is that sin is an action. We do sinful things that we are responsible for. We are guilty of those things. The Bible has a bunch of lists of these uh, sinful actions, and we hardly need to talk about them. But just for fun, uh, let's list out the seven deadly sins. We all have those ready to roll off our lips, right? Um, they are, but not they, they include but are not limited to. We want to use legal language um, to the following. Lust, greed, gluttony, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Now, we would be hard-pressed to identify a sinful action that we've committed that doesn't fit into one of those categories. And by the way, they also have their corresponding virtues, which include chastity, generosity, temperance, diligence, patience, gratitude, and humility. Now, a critical reminder to us is that sinful actions are always accompanied, almost always, by sinful thoughts. And Dallas Willard describes this as the cultivation of sin through temptation. And as you think about the list of the seven deadly sins, I hope you see that none of these are mistakes that we make. We've heard public people who do bad things say something to the effect, well, I made a mistake. I'm now going to go to a hospital or a rehab or a yoga retreat so I can go and work on myself, right? Hospitals, rehabs, and yoga retreats are good things. But none of them are solutions for sin. None of them are solutions for sin. When it comes to sin, repentance is an absolutely necessary part of it. And it's a part of working on myself. If we don't repent, I don't think we can say that we've worked on ourselves at all. So tonight I want us to promise one another that when we confess our sins, that we will not just think of them as mistakes or as accidents. We don't sin accidentally. Sin is the result of cultivated temptation. James, and many of you are probably familiar with this, but James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't sometimes be uh, feel like our sin has snuck up on us but keep in mind even if we feel like our sin has snuck up on us it we shouldn't feel that way and it may just be 
And it just may be that we're semi-consciously cultivating sinful thoughts and temptations in our lives. But the reality is this cultivation that Dallas Willard likes to describe is like planting seeds and tending to plants that bear fruit later on. Now, the second way for us to think about sin is sin as a power. So sin as an action and sin as a power. And it is an alien power. And I don't mean an alien from outer space. But it is the force that is continually working against God and God's people. It is a power that seeks to destroy and consume and corrupt. Now, sinful actions, like we talked about just a minute ago, are expressions of the power of sin. This power, in the words of Fleming Rutledge, is an alien power that must be driven from the field. An alien power that must be driven from the field. And that is what Jesus does. In doing that, it reminds us that sin is not only, or even primarily, a moral problem. Sin is a theological problem. We may commit sinful actions, but sin, the power, has been driven by the fe- from the field. It has been broken. The power of sin has been broken by Christ. Romans 8, verses 1 through 2, reminds us of that. It says, there is, therefore, for, <laughs> there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This and many other passages like it remind us that sin as a power has been broken through Christ's sacrifice. And now the repentance and confession that we do over our sinful actions is part of the great cleanup process of life in the kingdom. It's the great mop-up project, if you will, of life in God's kingdom. Now, I think 1 John is kind of funny in the way that it talks about sin. It goes in a lot of different directions. And it uses the word in both ways that I've described without really clarifying it as it goes. Here are some examples, starting in 1 John 1, verse 8 and 10. And we read this passage a couple of weeks ago. There it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now in this passage, sin is something that we do and it's something we are responsible for. Yet when we say the same thing about our sin that God does, that's really kind of the idea of confessing our sins. That's what confession is. Saying the same thing, agreeing with God about our sin. When we do that, we experience forgiveness and cleansing. But to claim that we do not sin is to call God a liar. And still within all this, even though it's an action we do, we get the sense of the power of sin and how sin works against us, not just as something that's going on inside my heart, which we all are wrestling with, but as a power that's beyond us. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins. And in him, that's Christ, there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. 
And this one is previous, this passage is previous, uh, is similar to the previous one. Both kinds of sin seem present in it. We commit sin, but then it suggests that we cannot sin if we are in Christ. We feel the both and in that passage. And let's go on to verse 9 in chapter 3. Those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. Now just, I don't know if any of you have read that passage and, and thought, well, I am doomed, evidently, because um, I feel like I can sin. Uh, feel kind of, you know, really good at it sometimes. Um, but uh, if we're born of God, we cannot sin. Here's a fun little secret. Maybe it's not a fun secret. I really didn't learn how to sin or how to really sin it up um, until after I was a Christian, right? Um, I don't know if any of you are in that boat. And we're going to come back to that here in just a minute. Your sins, not mine. Um, so where's John going with this idea of these two different kinds of sins? What could it mean? Especially in light of 1 John 1, 9 when it says... If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. But then later on it says we can't sin. And it's like, what's, what's happening here? I want to suggest to us that whenever 1 John says things like we cannot sin, it refers to the fact that sin as that alien power has been broken and destroyed. What is left is the remains of sin in the world and in our lives. And we still have to contend with those remains. First, uh, Romans talks a lot about that as well. And as we cooperate with God's grace, the sinful acts that we find ourselves committing are going to diminish more and more and more. In this respect, like I mentioned a minute ago, we're participating in God's mop-up operation. With regular confession and repentance, we're going to see our lives change. Now, we go through the motions of the prayer of confession every week. And I know that there is a danger for us to just go through the motions. And I would suggest to you that if, if you don't feel like praying the prayer of confession, still pray the prayer of confession because you have something to confess, evidently. Uh, your lack of desire to pray it. But I recognize that it's easy for us and, and, and I know there's a lot of fear sometimes of us falling into a pattern of just doing rote actions. So I urge you, whenever we have this chance to confess our sins and receive forgiveness each week, that it's no small thing. And we may have it memorized by now. I hope we do. But it's no small thing what we're doing. And I hope you will take joy, as I take joy, in hearing forgiveness pronounced over us. It's not because we have to go back and get more forgiveness from God. It's because we have forgotten and we will forget again. And God's forgiveness is an expression of his love. It's a beautiful expression of his love. And to hear that over and over again is to hear God express his love to us. There are two more passages I want us to think about that speak to the power of sin being broken. One is in chapter 4, verse 10. It says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then a passage we read in our first week, 
When John says, my little children, I'm writing writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, see, they're going back and forth. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the ultimate power of sin is dealt with in the sacrifice of Jesus. And again, I go back to our really long title. I'm just going to mention the first line of it. Fully human. This atoning sacrifice is the human Jesus Christ. This human Jesus Christ is also the divine Son of God. He is, as John says, the word of life. And we may sometimes feel that it is distasteful to speak of blood sacrifices. We're modern people by uh, every stretch of the imagination, you know. And Jesus on the cross, I want us to understand that when Jesus is on the cross, it's not just a beautiful image. It's not just about aesthetics. Let's be clear. Jesus really did die. And he really did suffer for our sins. He did. He suffered and he died in order that the power of sin may be broken in our lives and that the power of evil and death, which holds sway throughout the cosmos, would be broken. Having said that, let's be very clear about something. When we hear about the wrath of God being revealed at the cross, there's a temptation for people to think that God the Father is punishing Jesus. And I hear this phrase, you know, God the Father had to turn his head. Nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Not there. It was in a Carmen song way back when. I think I blame him. Um, God rest his soul. Um, But let's, let's not fall into that temptation to pick God against God. The wrath of God is a reality. And in order to understand the cross, we have to understand that God has wrath against sin. But the love which secured our salvation also comes from God. In him there is both wrath and love. The wrath is the reverse side of his love. But God's wrath is not turned away by anything outside of God. I want to repeat that. God's wrath is not turned away by anything outside of God. It was because God loved the world that he gave his son to be its savior. The crucifixion is not God the Father acting against the Son. It is God placing himself under his own sentence of death. The judge allows himself to be the judged. The only one who can rightly condemn becomes the one who is himself condemned. The problem of sin is not solved by our actions, our acknowledgement of our sin. It's not solved by vengeance for sure. Instead, the problem of sin is solved within God himself. Sin is dealt with within the three persons of the Trinity. Any and all accusations of divine child abuse are rendered moot when we consider that it is in the Trinity where the problem of sin is resolved. Now, I mentioned earlier, I didn't really learn how to sin until I became a Christian. And that sounds uh, obnoxious and wrong, but I want to clarify a couple of things. I was raised in a Christian home. And I mark the time that I became a Christian at when I was 10, when I was baptized. 
And by the time I was 10 and had gotten baptized, I had pretty much done most, if not all, the sins that a 10-year-old could do. I'm sure there was a few really horrible ones I didn't, didn't do. But, uh, and then I grew up. What I would like us to, an idea I want us to play with a little bit tonight, is I want us to understand that it's really only after we're Christians that we understand sin. As we grow, as we mature, we become more aware of it. I think growth in Christ will involve us becoming more aware of our sinfulness. We will become more aware of our need for repentance. We will become more grateful for the forgiveness that we experience. And I hope you don't find that discouraging because I intend it to be the opposite. I intend it to be encouraging to us. As we grow in our faith, we become more aware of our sin. Some portions of Christianity emphasize the need to know and confess our sins before we even become Christians. But I don't think we're really even aware of what sin is until we know and understand the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. If we as a congregation are led to an understanding of salvation, I think the sense of sin will come as a consequence. And then the knowledge of the, the danger of the danger that has already passed, the danger that our sins created, but that is already passed, will result in profound repentance and in worship. We are wooed by God's love. Then we are amazed by God's forgiveness. And God's love rides before his forgiveness. The two are inseparable, but the love of God is the source of his forgiveness. It's not our awareness of our sin that makes God forgive us. It is the love that God possesses for all of creation. And I don't know if you remember this little verse from Romans 2 where it says, it's the kindness and love of God that leads us to repentance. It's the love of God that fosters the sense of repentance. Carl Barth tells this great story of a man who was riding his horse across Lake Constance, which I think is in Switzerland. Um, it's evidently a big lake. Uh, but he's riding his horse in the middle of the night, and he rides all the way across this frozen lake. And when he gets to the other side of the lake, he is told at that point that he had ridden across the lake. He had no idea that he had ridden his horse across the lake. And when he found out what he had done, he was shocked and grateful that he was alive. And this is, I think, similar to the experience of us as Christians. We keep riding across the lake and we're like, oh, thank you, God. It could be totally different. It could be totally, totally different. And I think when we gather and worship every week, we are like that rider. So when we pray the prayer of confession, when we receive communion, we're looking back over our shoulder and going, I cannot believe I did that. I did not fall through the ice. Holy mackerel. I don't know why I put holy mackerel in there. I mean, thank God is really more appropriate, isn't it? Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Recognizing our sin is, is difficult, but it should ultimately bring us joy. Our sinfulness is a reminder of the great and deep love that God has for us. A love illustrated by his taking this sin upon himself a love illustrated by him taking the initiative. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. 
And the other thing that this sense of forgiveness should reveal in us, should inspire in us, is the second half of that verse that says, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So before we pray our prayer of confession, I want to return to an idea I mentioned briefly. Sin's not a moral problem, it's a theological problem. And what I mean by a theological problem is that, I mean, sin is immoral, I get it. Uh, I mean, most sins are immoral. Um, but the ultimate cure for sin is not better laws or better rehab programs or better behavior. Better education is not going to solve the problem of sin. All those things, again, are important and good, but they don't deal with sin. Sin, and this is Eugene Peterson's phrase, is a refused relationship with God that spills over into spoiled relationships with the people around us. Sin is personal, sin is relational, sin is theological. Because theology is personal and it's relational. Sin is a theological problem because God is the one who is victimized by our sin. He's not the only victim, but he's the first and the primary victim. And God is the one who takes the initiative to set things right. Let me, I think this is the second time I said, let me finish with this, but this is the last time I'll say it today. Um, I hope this helps us, but I, I also recognize that a lot of us have been, in whatever way, victimized by what we might call shame, whether from family or friends or the culture at large or our church settings in the past. Uh, Brene Brown and other folks are helping us understand and address the problems that shame brings. And there's no doubt that toxic relationships are a reality, and they're really destructive. But as we talk about sin and as we talk about repentance, I hope you don't experience uh, sin being shoveled on you more and more, or shame, rather, being shoveled on you more and more. Because I think that the gift of repentance, the gift of confession, is the gift of having that shame lifted off. And, and the way that we know this is because of the way that God speaks about us. Just look at the way God speaks about us in Scripture, in 1 John. I mean, all the way through 1 John, he can't help. He just says, my little children, my dear children, beloved. These are the words that 1 John uses for God's people in the book of 1 John. This is the language of God to us. And when we confess our sins and, and repent and receive that forgiveness and hear that forgiveness proclaimed over us again, it's not because we're so horrible, but it's because our ears get clogged up with all kinds of other messages. Repentance is an invitation to be free from shame. Because in Christ, God has called all of us to be his child. God has called all of us to be his beloved. And when we hear the proclamation of forgiveness again in a few moments, I want you to hear God speaking, my children, my beloved, you are forgiven. You are loved. Let me pray. 
Lord, right now we ask that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts and our minds. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us recognize how we've been freed from the power of sin. And thus, Lord, I pray that you would empower us uh, to be free ourselves from sinful actions. Empower us, empower us with your spirit to live and honor you all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.